All right, there we go. Hello? You got me? I'm here. Just like the apostles needed the Holy Spirit, I need the power um, to talk. All right, here we go. Uh, hey, everybody. Good morning. Um, Suzanne Williams is going to come and read for us out of the book of Acts. Um, why don't we stand up uh, for this? I know we just sat down. But uh, part of standing when we read the word is, is, I think Dave Dillard reminded me of this the other day. It's us saying, uh, like when a judge comes into the room, hey, this is authority. Uh, and so uh, let's listen to the reading of the word together. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let me pray for us. You can be seated. Uh, Lord, uh, teach us now. Holy Spirit, uh, guide us. Uh, be the revealer of truth, the convictor of hearts. Um, help us to understand uh, what it is that you want us to see uh, and lead us out of that place. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so we are starting a new series. Whoa, careful, LaCroix. Uh, starting a new series. Uh, Jeremy started us off in it last week in the book of Acts. Uh, and the title, I don't know if he said it last week or not, but the title of the series is called Bearing Witness, uh, The Adventure of Acts, all right? So uh, we are looking at the life or the beginning of the early church in Acts, but we're not just kind of observing it for no no specific reason. We're actually looking at it particularly at the plan, or maybe you'd use the word the mission, that God was accomplishing through his people in the early church in this book of Acts. Uh, the pastors have been reading this book together uh, called Canoeing the Mountains, a uh, really fascinating book. Uh, but there's a quote in that book that has kind of got stuck in my noggin, and uh, I continue to meditate on it. And it really it helps frame up what we're going to be doing in the book of Acts, and it's this. Uh, it says, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. You hear the difference? It's not so much that God has a mission for his church, like, hey, church, you're together, and here's some stuff for you to do, but that God has the church for the mission. It'd almost be like my sons uh, play soccer, one plays football. If you all got together and put on the uniform and practice and everything, and then you never actually went out onto the field, we would all think that would be a little ridiculous, right? Because you're actually a team for a reason, which is to actually participate in playing that sport. God doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission in the world. That's what the book of Acts is really showing us. It's what the book of Acts is about. Luke wrote the book. In his former book, he talked about Jesus' mission, right? Everything that Jesus began to do and teach until he ascended. Jeremy preached on that last week, the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
But that ascension wasn't the end of the story, right? Jesus' mission didn't end at his ascension. Acts is about the continuing work of Jesus through his church. Jesus said, wait, right, in Jerusalem. I'm commanding you to wait for the promised Holy Spirit that is to come. And that's going to be essential. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is going to be essential to y'all being a part of my mission. I am going to carry out a mission through you. And if you don't have that Holy Spirit, you will not have the power or the capacity, the means by with which to accomplish the role that I have for you in redemptive history. And that's a role that we play today too. God doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. And the mission is this. That's why we called it bearing witness. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? I'm giving you this Holy Spirit so that you will be my witnesses. 1 Peter 2, Peter frames it up like this. He says, you are a chosen people. I've selected you. Brought you into a family. You are a royal priesthood, which is basically you are the way that Jesus goes public now. That's what priests were, right? The mediating presence between God and man. I'm going to go public through you now. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. So not just as individuals, collectively, as a body, as a team, the church, a holy nation. Why? Peter says that you might declare the praises of him that brought you out of darkness and into his glorious light. I've called you to be witnesses to me. And when you've witnessed something, this is true, everybody knows this, right? When you've witnessed something spectacular, you've experienced something spectacular, and if, if you don't realize that the gospel is something spectacular, that the grace and the forgiveness that has been conferred on us as a result of the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, if that does not bring joy to your heart and wonder to your heart, then what we're going to talk about this morning is so vital for you. Because it's spectacular. When we witness something spectacular, we talk about it. I almost got hit on the way home from a soccer tournament uh, by a Mustang that was going like 1,000 miles an hour, and he about drove that thing up into my truck bed. What was the first thing I did when I got home? I talked about it to Emily. You won't believe what happened, right? When we witness something spectacular, we talk about it. We're all natural evangelists in that sense. When something impacts us, it comes out of us. Made me think of What About Bob, right? When's the last time you watched What About Bob? No, seriously, when is the last time you watched it? There are movies that last and there are movies that don't last. Like there are some movies I loved when I was young and I went back and watched them like, really? That's not one of them. Bob lasts, right? And do you remember when Bob got brought on to Good Morning America at Lake Winnipesaukee? He kind of, well, he, he brought himself into uh, the story, right? And Leo Marvin is talking about his book, Baby Steps, right? But Leo's a train wreck because he doesn't want Bob up there. And eventually he's fumbling through the interview and the interviewer turns to Bob and says, what? She says, well, Bob, what about you? Like, how do you feel about Baby Steps? What does he say? Nobody can remember, can you? <laughs> Mashed potatoes and gravy, Marie. I just love Baby Steps, right? mashed potatoes and gravy, and because of this man, and he turns to Leo Marvin, because of this man, Dr. Leo Marvin, I'm now on national TV. 
He says, I don't even know what's going on here, but I'm very excited. <laughs> exactly. That's it. That's us. I don't even know what's going on here. I don't know how I got here. But someone stepped into my life, Jesus, and did something, and here I am. I'm on national TV, the national TV of, of life. I'm out there now, and I'm very excited. Except Jesus isn't a jealous, neurotic uh, Richard Dreyfus, who's you know, fighting for glory in the camera. He's saying, no, I want to go public through you, right? We're called to bear witness. We need the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. That's what Jeremy talked about last week and Scripture talked about last week. But just because we have that, that Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily mean that we stay in step with the Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Galatians 5 talks about that. You've been given the Spirit. That's your identity now. That's who you are. But you still can fall out of step with that Spirit. And what Suzanne just read out of the books of, book of Acts is how did the early church, who had just received this Spirit, this new identity, stay in step with the Spirit? How did they stay in stride with this new identity, this new power that they had been given? So three things, hopefully somewhat quickly. Who knows? I'm kidding. What they did, why they did these things, and what happened as a result, okay? Those are the three things we'll talk about. What they did, why they did these, three thing, or these things, and what happened as a result. I preached to Granny White right before this, and I realized in point one and point two are kind of the same point, so... We'll see how it goes. <laughs> kind of mashing them together. What they did. It says there in verse 42, and for the record, uh, when we taught our vision series in January called DTR, you guys remember that? Define the relationship. I taught on this passage for four straight weeks. So I was like, we, there's a ton of teaching on the nuance of this. So we're going to kind of be up high today. If you want to go re-listen to those, go re-listen to January. What they did, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, there's one thing, second thing, and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer, all right? That is what they did. And this is kind of the, 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 the thesis that will run itself throughout the sermon. They devoted, or some of the other, you know, like translations, Old King James would say, they continually or they steadfastly gave themselves over to. They continually gave themselves over to these four things. And why that they did that, we'll get to that in a second, is, is that that kept them in the stream of God's devoted love for them. And in staying in that stream of God's devoted love for them, it transformed and sustained them that they would be a powerful, magnetic, witnessing force in the world that they found themselves. They devoted themselves to those things which ultimately led them to continually experiencing God's devotion to them, and that transformed them. It sustained them. So what do they do? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Those four things were things, I don't know if you remember, you maybe didn't look at Peter's sermon that he preached right before this, but it said when Peter preached his sermon that they were cut to the heart, and they basically were so uh, awakened by what was going on in the gospel, they said, basically, what do we do? How do we respond to this? These four things were the practices that they did that had that gospel cut that was made in their heart to never heal up. Because there are some cuts, there are a lot of cuts in our lives that we want healed up. That's not one of them. That's a cut you never want to heal. 
so that fresh grace, so that fresh goodness, so that fresh gospel medicine, salve, balm can flow into your life. That's why they practice these marks of devotion that defined their life and the rhythm of the life of the early church. They were a spirit-filled church that continually, steadfastly devoted themselves to these four things. And what they did in doing that, what those four things did is, is it matured them. It deepened their experience of their relationship with the Lord and his love for them. Consequently, it deepened their love for one another, and then eventually it led to a remarkable love for the world around them, right? Think of it this way. The vertical relationship, experiencing the love of the Lord and growing in the love of the Lord began to absolutely shape everything about their horizontal relationships. And oftentimes you can tell that, right? The quality of our horizontal relationships oftentimes is a reflection of our vertical relationship. So let's talk for a second about devoted to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? Because that, that ultimately is saying this for our purposes today. They were devoted to gathering together to be taught God's word. To open up God's word to allow the apostles at that time as well as the Holy Spirit to teach them the truth. Which is saying effectively this, I'm going to give authority and position to the scriptures in my life above everything else. When I'm trying to figure out life, when I'm looking for wisdom, for guidance, for meaning, that's where I'm going, not Google, right? That's what I turn to. And what the apostles were teaching at the time, what was Peter teaching? If you go to Peter's sermon that happens just before this, Peter, again, he didn't go to seminary in the sense of he didn't go to preaching class. This was the guy who was terrified, said he was never, you know, never going to deny Jesus, then eventually did. Now he finds himself spirit-filled, standing up and testifying, witnessing to who Jesus was. And what is Peter's first sermon full of? Scripture. He basically walks them through Joel, a couple of different places in Psalms, and he connects basically the fact that all of the fulfillment of all the prophecy and all of the promises and all of the covenants, everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Peter taught Scripture. And they knew that. They were like, we're going to be devoted to being taught to God's Word, to the apostles' teaching. They fellowship with the Lord through His Word as well as through prayer, and their fellowship with the Lord began to shape their fellowship with one another. It says that they devoted to the apostles' teaching, and then what? To fellowship. We hear that word fellowship. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word. You know, maybe you had a fellowship hall on your church, right? Which is basically where like awesome potlucks occur. Tons of what's basically where I ate dessert as a child. <laughs> yeah? But fellowship, that word koinonia uh, is a strong word in Greek. And when we hear fellowship, we may think of hanging out or having conversations or connecting and there's obviously nothing inherently bad about that. And it's not not that, but it's more than that. The koinonia, the fellowship that they were committed to, they devoted to, it was a deep sense of collective purpose that they shared. A sense of ownership. That I'm not just somebody who comes here and attends or is, is, is on the fringes here. It, it's, it's belonging. And when we hear belonging, we think of like, I want to belong to something. But think about it this way. You actually, when you own something, you say, it belongs to me, right? My car belongs to me. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about fellowship. 
I belong to it and it belongs to me. It's mine. It's that serious to me. It's more like the fellowship that people who are struggling and overcoming addiction experience in recovery. If you've ever been in addiction, you know what I'm talking about. Because people who are in addiction, they aren't confused that they need one another and need one another in a very particular way. Because in isolation, the opportunity for falling off the wagon or going back to whatever they were doing is higher. They know that. They care not just about their own sobriety. They care about everyone's sobriety. And they understand that it's linked together. We're going to stay healthy together because individually I can't. I can't grow in the gospel in isolation. So when you think fellowship, think more like Tolkien and Fellowship of the Ring, right? A band of unique individual people gathered for a purpose, each contributing to the cause. This fellowship that this community had was a deep sense of responsibility for one another. Not in a dutiful way, because we hear responsibility and we think duty, but they felt responsible for one another because of love. They served and they sacrificed for one another because they had been served and sacrificed for because of Jesus. What was going on at this time in world history, there was actually a huge famine going on in the Roman world at the time. And basically everybody was fleeing cities because cities were a place of obviously very close contact and there was disease and death. Uh, So everybody was at the time fleeing to the countryside. So social distancing is not a new thing, right? They were doing it back then. But that was what was ultimately different about the Christian community of the day. And what absolutely shocked the Greco-Roman world is that the Christians stayed. They didn't run for the hills. They stayed in the city and they bound up wounds and ministered to people who were dying and died themselves. And it shocked the world around them. But their purpose, their fellowship was bigger than just being together. They had a collective purpose. They had a koinonia. They had a belonging that changed the world. That's what they did. Why did they do it? Why did they continually give themselves over to these things? I've kind of said this. I told you the points kind of bled together. They did this so that they could continue to experience the Lord continually devoting himself to them. All right? That's why. Because oftentimes we hear things like, okay, the apostles teaching us getting in the word fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. We think in those things in terms of spiritual disciplines, which oftentimes are like, okay, I need to do those things. And if I do those things, that's going to you know, kind of pull the levers for God. I'm going to prove to God something, right? They weren't doing these things to prove to God anything. Maybe it would be helpful to not even think of them in terms of spiritual disciplines. Think of them in terms of being means of grace is another way of talking about this. They practice these things not to make God gracious or to make God love them or to show that they loved God. God already did love them. They didn't make God gracious. They were means to experience that he already has been gracious and he is gracious and he does love us. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about sweet CCs. Yes, yogurt, frozen yogurt. We have, for the record, we have a frozen yogurt epidemic happening in Nashville. No? Yeah? Raise your hand if you agree with me. We need more frozen yogurt in Nashville, right? <laughs> Some of you are old enough to remember TCBY and Green Hills. Yeah. 
yeah, it's, it's bad, you know, what's going on. And Sweet Cece's was a gift to the world, and now it's gone, and I'm frustrated about it. But uh, the fact that somebody hasn't figured this out in 12 South, like how 12 South doesn't have a frozen yogurt place, I don't get it. If you took that and a mini golf course, it would be like people carrying giant trash bags full of money and just saying, please take it from me, right? So if you do that, one of you business savvy people, intellectual property rights right there. Sweet CCs, I don't know why this came to my brain when thinking about the means of grace, but you know when you're, you're getting your yogurt and then you go to the giant tubes, right? Yeah, the tubes, the tubes of grace, <laughs> all right? And uh, so apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, right? Um, and all you gotta do is just twist the knob, right? And twist the knob and keep twisting the knob if you're one of my children, right? And they just pour it out, right? Guess what twisting the knob doesn't do? It doesn't make the toppings appear, right? They're already there. You're not, you're not making the toppings happen. You're just simply doing one small thing that is opening up the flow and absolutely dispensing what is good that's already there. That's why they did these things. That's why they did it to stay plugged into, step under, receive the flow of God's love for them. Because God understands something. If you don't let me love you, you will never be able to love other people, not only the way I do, but I want to love other people through you. And the way that that happens is, is you stay under the tumblers of my love, right? Dispensing on me. And Jesus knew this. He hinted at it in John 15. You remember in this giant, I think Jeremy actually mentioned this giant teaching that Jesus did on the Holy Spirit, basically, in the Gospel of John, uh, right before he's being whisked away, you know, by Judas to go to the cross. He teaches them about the Holy Spirit, their need of the Holy Spirit, the role that the Holy Spirit will have in their lives. But he says something in there in John 15, when he's talking about, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He says, remain in me and I in you, apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't do anything. And functionally, for what we're talking about this morning, what that means is if we're called to bear witness, if that's the fruit that's supposed to be happening in our lives, I can't do that. I will not bear the kind of witness if I'm not remaining underneath and experiencing his love for me. The fruit of my witness will flow out of my proximity to the Lord. And that makes sense. We even understand that on a natural level. We talk about what we remain in, what is closest to us, what we give our hearts and our times to. So that is why they did these things. That's why these four practices were so important. It was the way that they stayed close. They remained. They drew near to Jesus. He was already near to them, but they drew near to him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word and through their fellowship, it's literally like throwing logs on the fire of God's love. And it goes from being a small little campfire to this giant communal bonfire is what happened. And what happens at a bonfire? Why do you build a bonfire? More people, right? It's attractive, right? People want to get and gather around the fire. Chris Stapleton, St. Chris, as I'm beginning to refer to him, He's got a song, uh, I was realizing this as I was preaching in Granny White, it's actually, I think, about infidelity, which is kind of, go with me. 
Uh, <laughs> I know. But uh, he has this lyric in a song, and it's haunted me. And it, it's, it's this point to a T. He says this, and he doesn't say it. He sings it, right? He says, I can't, I got to sing it. He says, don't put my love on your back burner. Never let anything that hot get cold. Ooh. Don't put my love on your back burner. Never let anything that hot get cold. That's like what David said when he says, restore me not to the knowledge of my salvation, to the joy of my salvation, to the heat of my salvation, to the intimacy of my salvation. Why they did these things is they, were, they knew, I can't let God's love go on my back burner. I can't let something that hot get cold. I need to warm myself on it all the time. That's why they were devoted steadfastly to these four things. Because in being devoted to those means of grace, they experienced God's ongoing and ultimate devotion to them. They weren't devoted to prove their relationship, but improve their experience of it, of what they already had, what was completely finished in Jesus Christ. And God said to them, practice these things. Devote yourself to these things to have your hearts repeatedly refreshed and transformed by my love and by my grace. And that's what happened. So that's the third point. What happened? time is well their devotion led to something pretty supernatural we talked jeremy talked last week about the supernatural act at pentecost of tongues of fire coming down right and that they had been given the holy spirit and that opened up a supernatural line of communication right the people were speaking in languages that they didn't naturally speak and people were hearing the gospel in their own language and all of a sudden, people were saying, what is going on? And some people were saying, these guys are drunk. But what was going on was the gospel was going out, right? So supernatural communication happened because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we just read about in 44 through 47 is supernatural relationships began to happen. Communication, same as dating, right? You start by talking, and eventually something more happens. Supernatural relationships began to form in this early church community. And those relationships were across socioeconomic and ethnic cultural barriers. I mean, this was a really radically diverse group of people. Let me reread it. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to everyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just touch on these, and we're going to skip the stone for a second. All the believers were, were together and had everything in common. How is that possible? Like, are they just being hyperbolic when he says that? Because I, I think Catherine read last week, do you remember the crazy list of people that Catherine read all those Mesopotamians and Cretans and, you know, Arabs. And it was like a huge, hard-to-read list of folks. In Acts 2, it says that they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And yet, because of what was happening in the gospel, there was this togetherness, there was this everything in commonness, because 
their identity wasn't in their nationality anymore. It wasn't in their common interest. The gospel and what Jesus had done for them had become the very nature of their identity. There was a unity that they were experiencing that shocked the world. They were all together. They had everything in common. It says daily they got together in their homes and in their temple courts. What does that mean? Ultimately, it means this. You hear us say this all the time, that all of life is worship. You've come to worship this morning, but this isn't the only time we worship as a community. All of life is worship. So what was going on was is that their whole life was starting to be shaped by working out the gospel. In our homes, in our private, in our public lives, we're daily working this stuff out together, right? It says there that their hearts were marked by gladness and sincerity. I mean, talk about supernatural. I mean, our world and our lives oftentimes are marked by what? Grumbling and cynicism. Think about that. Gladness and sincerity. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. What does that mean? It basically means this, that the, that community was living and loving in the world in such a way that even people who completely disagreed with them and didn't get down with the gospel at all still dug them. They're like, I don't know about what you believe, but I, I, I love you and you love me and, and we're good. They experienced the grace of everyone because of what was going on. And then lastly, they sold their property and their possessions to give to people who were in need. This was a radical gospel-fueled generosity or hospitality would be another word for that, right? But think of, we think about hospitality and we think about like twinkly lights, right? And farm to table and all this, which is awesome, by the way. But hospital is embedded in the word hospitality. That's what hospitality is about. Gospel, biblical hospitality is not just hanging out and enjoying a meal with people that we love. It's, it's being a, a hospital for the sick and for the broken and for the spiritually lost and in need. Christine Pohl, in her book, Living in the Community, Cultivating Practices that Sustain Us. That's a book she wrote, uh, and that's what they were doing. They were cultivating these practices that sustain them. She says this, a life of hospitality begins in worship. It begins with the apostles' teaching. It begins with fellowship. It begins with the sacraments, breaking bread and prayer. It begins in that place. A life of hospitality begins in worship with a recognition of God's grace and generosity, Hospitality is not first a duty and responsibility. It is a response of love and gratitude for God's love and welcome to us. They weren't doing what they ought to be doing. They were being loved by Jesus and then going out and loving everybody else. This was not legalism. This was not buckle it down spiritual disciplines. This was, let me stand in the freight train stream of God's love for me and then watch what happens. Imagine if the world today saw a church that was that unified. That focused on like they were praising God and enjoying the favor. Praising God, elevating something more than ourselves or our name or our glory but elevating him, how attractive would that be? How transformational would that be? Is that just a description of what happened in the early church or could that happen here? 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just for all of you who are maybe thinking, well, maybe if we do this, then God still added people, right? We don't add people. Salvation comes by the Lord alone, but he certainly loves to use us. It's his design to go public through us. We are ambassadors of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. He is making his appeal and reconciling the world to himself through us. So I'll close with this. I hope at least some of you are sitting here thinking this. Well, they teach the Bible at Midtown. Um, We have small groups at Midtown. So we fellowship together in one another's homes and we open up the word. Uh, We're trying to work hard to cultivate a prayer uh, life of our church, right? We do all these things. Exactly, because we didn't come up with this stuff, right? We're actually trying to follow what Scripture teaches us about what does it mean to be the church. So that's why we teach the gospel. That's why we teach Scripture, God's authoritative, revealed, inspired word. That's why we practice gospel-centered discipleship in small groups. So if you're not in a small group, I would encourage you. That's happening, I think, this week or next week. They're starting up. I'd encourage you to get into a small group. Practicing this stuff only once a week is like eating one meal a week. It's why we're trying to incorporate prayer more vitally into our community because these things working in concert with one another dramatically affects our experience of God's love for us and then dramatically empowers us to be those who God loves other people through. So would you devote yourself to this stuff? That's my challenge to us this morning. Would you consider continually giving yourself over to these things. So just practically what they look like is commit to being here on Sunday mornings. I've said that to you guys before, but not because you are trying to prove something to God or, or prove something to anybody else, but because you need to be loved by Jesus. And Jesus uses worship to love you. Would you uh, commit to getting involved in a, in a smaller form of community, like a small group, a discipleship group? Would you say, hey, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna plant my flag because I need to re-witness God's love for me. This is gonna help me remain in him. Would you, would you embrace some of those rhythms and then just watch what happens? Watch how God loving you will begin to uh, make you literally a, a walking hospitality, a walking hospital that is sharing the good news, sharing the love of God naturally it will flow you will have words of life for people you will have encouragement for people because you've been encouraged comfort for people because you've been comforted it'll it'll open up doors for acts of mercy and self-emptying love because that's where jesus leads us but i i've got to be committed to experiencing his commitment to me if i'm ever going to walk in this call all right that's it let me pray for us lord Oh, man. I, uh, I know that there are so many things in my life, uh, competing devotions, things that I continually give myself over to. Uh, and if I'm honest, uh, believing that those things, uh, those things are going to deliver and give me the love that I only have in you. So I pray for myself, I pray for my friends, our community here, Lord, uh, that you would continue uh, to grow us in these four specific areas. Um, Lord, that your word, uh, that our, our 
relationships being built and fellowship around uh, your word as well as the, the shared purpose of being salt and light in this world, um, being the ones that you want to go public through, uh, that you would strengthen that and that you would make this church a dynamic place, uh, a hospital of sorts, uh, where people who are um, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, uh, lonely, needy, uh, would come in and find and meet you. Uh, would that be true of us, Lord? Uh, we know that, that you're the one who does that work. Uh, our salvation is, is completely because of you, uh, but so is our growth in you. Uh, so uh, please, Lord, uh, continue to, to dispense your grace on us, uh, we pray in your name. Amen.